CD3 Lord Hong turned to the Serene Council's minutes eunuch. Can we get on? he said. The man licked his brush nervously. Nearly finished, O oh Lord, he said. Lord Hong sighed. Damn calligraphy. There would be changes. A written language of seven thousand letters, and it took all day to write a thirteen-syllable poem about a white pony trotting through wild hyacinths. And that was fine and beautiful, he had to concede, and no one did it better than Lord Hong. But Ankh Morpork had an alphabet of twenty-six unexpressive, ugly, crude letters, suitable only for peasants and artisans, and had produced poems and plays that left white-hot trails across the soul. And you could also use it to write the bloody minutes of a five-minute meeting in less than a day. How far have you got? he said. The eunuch coughed politely. How softly the bloom of the apricot, he began. Yes, 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 said Lord Hong. Could we on this occasion dispense with the poetic framework, please? Ah, the minutes of the last meeting were duly signed. Is that all? Ah, you see, I have to finish painting the petals on... I wish this council to be concluded by this evening. Go away. The eunuch looked anxiously around the table, grabbed his scrolls and brushes and scuttled out. Good, said Lord Hong. He nodded at the other warlords. He saved a special, friendly nod for Lord Tang. Lord Hong had prodded the thought with some intrigued interest, but it really did seem that Lord Tang was a man of honour. It was a rather cowed and crabbed honour, but it was definitely in there somewhere, and would have to be dealt with. It would be better in any case, my lords, if we spoke in private, he said, on the matter of the rebels. Disturbing intelligence has reached me of their activities. Lord McSweeney nodded. I have seen to it that thirty rebels in Sumdim have been executed, he said. As an example. As an example of the mindlessness of Lord McSweeney, thought Lord Hong. To his certain knowledge, and none had better knowledge than he, there had not even been a cadre of the Red Army in some dim. But almost certainly there was one now. It was really too easy. The other warlords also made small but proud speeches about their efforts to turn barely noticeable unrest into bloody revolution, although they hadn't managed to see it like that. They were nervous under the bravado, like sheepdogs who'd had a glimpse of the world where the sheep did not run. Lord Hong cherished their nervousness. He intended to use it by and by. He smiled and smiled. Finally, he said, However, my lords, despite your sterling efforts, the situation remains grave. I have information that a very senior wizard from Ankh Morpork has arrived to assist the rebels here in Hung Hung, and that there is a plot to overthrow the good organization of the celestial world and assassinate the Emperor. May he live for ten thousand years. I must naturally assume that the foreign devils are behind this. I know nothing of this, snapped Lord Tang. My dear Lord Tang, I was not suggesting that you should, said Lord Hong. I meant, Lord Tang began. Your devotion to the Emperor is unquestioned, Lord Hong continued as smoothly as a knife through warm butter. It is true that there is almost certainly someone highly placed assisting these people, but no one shred of evidence points to you. I should hope not. Indeed. The Lords Fang and McSweeney moved very slightly away from Lord Tang. How can we have let this happen? said Lord Fang. Certainly it is true that people, foolish, deranged people, have sometimes ventured out beyond the wall, but to let one come back... I am afraid the Grand Vizier at the time was a man of changeable humours said Lord Hong. He thought it would be interesting to see what intelligence was brought back. Intelligence, said Lord Fang. The city of Ankh, more 
pork is an abomination, mere anarchy. There appear to be no nobles of consequence, and the society is that of a termite nest. It would be better for us, my lords, if it was wiped from the face of the world. Your incisive comments are duly noted, Lord Fang, said Lord Hong, while part of him rolled on the floor laughing. In any event, he went on, I shall see that extra guards are posted in the Emperor's chambers. However all this trouble began, we must see that it ends here. He watched them, watching him. They think I want to rule the Empire, he thought. So they're all, except for Lord Tang, rebel fellow traveller as he will undoubtedly prove to be, working out how this will be to their advantage. He dismissed them and retired to his chambers. It was a fact that the ghosts and devils who lived beyond the wall had no grasp of culture and certainly no concept of books and being in possession of such a patently impossible object was punishable by eventual death and confiscation. Lord Hong had built up quite a library. He had even acquired maps, and more than maps. There was a box he kept locked in the room with the full-length mirror. Not now, later on. Ankh Morpork. Even the name sounded rich. All he needed was a year. The dreadful scourge of the rebellion would allow him to wield the kind of powers that even the maddest emperor had not dreamed of. And then it would be unthinkable not to build a vengeful fleet to wreak terror on the foreign devils. Thank you, Lord Fang. Your point is duly noted. As if it mattered who was emperor. The empire was possibly a bonus to be acquired later, perhaps in passing. Let him just have Ankh Morpork with its busy dwarfs and its grasp, above all, of machinery. Look at the barking dogs. Half the time they blew up. They were inaccurate. The principle was sound, but the execution was terrible, especially when they blew up. It had come as a revelation to Lord Hong when he looked at the problem the Ankh Morpork way and realised that it might just possibly be better to give the job of auspicious dog-maker to some peasant with a fair idea about metal and explosive earths than to some clerk who'd got the highest marks in an examination to find the best poem about iron. In Ankh Morpork, people did things. Let him just walk down Broadway as owner and eat the pies of the famous Mr. Dibbler. Let him play one game of chess against Lord Vetinari. Of course it would mean leaving the man one arm. He was shaking with excitement. Not later, now. His fingers reached for the secret key on its chain around his neck. It was barely a track. Rabbits would have walked right past it and you would have sworn there was a sheer passless rock wall until you found the gap. Once you did find it, it was hardly worth the bother. It led to a long gully with a few natural caves in it, and a bit of grass and a spring. And as it turned out, Cohen's gang. Except that he called it a horde. They were sitting in the sun, complaining about how it wasn't as warm as it used to be. I'm back then, lads, said Cohen. Been away, have you? What? What's he say? He said he's back. Black what? Cohen beamed at Rincewind. I brought them with me, he said. Like I said, no future in going it alone these days. Um, said Rincewind after surveying the little scene. Are any of these men under eighty years old? Stand up, boy Willie, said Cohen. A dehydrated man, only marginally less wrinkled than the others, got to his feet. It was his feet that were particularly noticeable. He wore boots with extremely thick soles. "'So's me feet touch the ground,' he said. "'Don't they, um, touch the ground in ordinary boots?' "'No. Orthopaedic problem, see? "'Like, you know how a lot of people got one leg shorter than the other? "'Funny thing, with me, it's... "'Don't tell me,' said Rincewind. "'Sometimes I get these amazing flashes. "'Both legs are shorter than the other, right?' "'Amazing. Of course, I can see you're a wizard,' said Boy Willie." You'd know about this sort of thing. Rincewind gave the next member of the horde a bright, mad smile. It was almost certainly a human being, because wizened little monkeys didn't usually go around in a wheelchair while wearing a helmet with horns on. It grimaced at Rincewind. This is... What? What? Mad Hamish, said Coman. What? Who's he? I bet that wheelchair terrifies them, said Rincewind, especially the blades. 
We had the devil of a job getting it over the wall, Cohen conceded, but you'd be amazed at his turn of speed. What? And this is Truckle, the uncivil. Sod off, wizard. Rincewind beamed at Exhibit B. Those walking sticks, fascinating, very impressive the way you've got love and hate written on them. Cohen smiled proprietorially. Truckle used to be reckoned one of the biggest bad asses in the world, he said. Really? Him? But it's amazing what you can do with a herbal suppository. Up yours, mister, said Truckle. Rincewind blinked. Um, can I have a word, Cohen? He drew the ancient barbarian aside. I don't want to seem to be making trouble here, he said. But it doesn't strike you, does it, that these men are a bit, well, past their sell-by date? A little, not to put too fine a point on it, old? What? What's he seeing? He says it's cold. What? What are you saying? There's nearly 500 years of concentrated barbarian hero experience in them, said Cohen. 500 years' experience in a fighting unit is good, said Rincewind. It's good, but it should be spread over more than one person. I mean, what are you expecting them to do? Fall over on people? Nothing wrong with them, said Cohen, indicating a frail man who was staring intently at a large block of teak. Look at old Caleb the Ripper over there. See? Killed more than 400 men with his bare hands. 85 now, and but for the dust he's marvellous. What the hell is he doing? Ah, see? They're into bare-handed combat here. Very big thing, unarmed combat, on account of most people not being allowed weapons. So Caleb reckons he's onto a good thing. See that big lump of teak? It's amazing. He just gives this blood-curdling shout and... Cohen... They're all very old men. They're the cream, Rincewind sighed. Cohen, they're the cheese. Why have you brought them all the way here? Can I help me steal something, said Cohen. What, a jewel or something? It's something, said Cohen sulkily. It's in Hung Hung. Really, my word, said Rincewind, and there's a lot of people in Hung Hung, I expect. About half a million, said Cohen. Lots of guards, no doubt. About 40,000, I heard. About three-quarters of a million, if you count all the armies. Right, said Rincewind. So with these half-dozen old men... The Silver Horde, said Cohen with a touch of pride. What? Pardon? That's their name. Got to have a name in the Horde business. The Silver Horde. Rincewind turned around. Several of the Horde had fallen asleep. The Silver Horde, he said. Right. Matches the colour of their hair. Those that have got hair. So, with this um, Silver Horde, you're going to rush the city, kill all the guards, and steal all the treasure. Cohen nodded. Yeah, something like that. Of course, we won't have to kill all the guards. Oh, no? It'd take too long. Yes, and of course you'll want to leave something to do tomorrow. I mean, they'll be busy, what with the revolution and everything. A revolution too, my word. They say it's a time of portents, said Cohen. They... I'm surprised they've got time to worry about the state of their camping equipment, said Rincewind. You'd be well advised to stay along with us, said Genghis Cohen. You'd be safer with us. Um, I'm not sure about that, said Rincewind, grinning horribly. I'm not sure about that at all. By myself, he thought. Only ordinary horrible things can happen to me. Cohen shrugged, and then stared around the clearing until his gaze lighted on a slight figure who was sitting a little apart from the rest, reading a book. "'Look at him,' he said benevolently, like a man pointing out a dog doing a good trick. "'Oh, he's got his nose in a book!' He raised his voice. "'Teach, come and show this wizard the way to Hung Hung!' He turned back to Rincewind. "'Teach will tell you anything you want to know, cos he knows everything. I'll leave you with him. I've got to go and have a talk with old Vincent.' He waved a hand dismissively. Not that there's anything wrong with him at all, he said defiantly. It's just that his memory's bad. We had a bit of trouble on the way over. I keep telling him it's rape the women and set fire to the houses. Rape, said Rincewind. That's not very... He's 87, said Cohen. Don't go and spoil an old man's dreams. 
Teach turned out to be a tall, stick-like man with an amiably absent-minded expression and a fringe of white hair so that, when viewed from above, he would appear to be a daisy. He certainly did not appear to be a bloodthirsty brigand, even though he was wearing a chainmail vest slightly too big for him and a huge scabbard strapped across his back, which contained no sword but held a variety of scrolls and brushes. His chainmail shirt had a breast pocket with three different coloured pens in a leather pocket protector. "'Ronald Savaloy,' he said, shaking Rincewind's hand. "'The gentlemen do rather assume considerable knowledge on my part. "'Let me see. You want to go to Hung Hung, yes?' Rincewind had been thinking about this. "'I want to know the way to Hung Hung,' he said guardedly. "'Yes, well, at this time of year I'd head towards the setting sun "'until I left the mountains and reached the alluvial plain "'where you'll see evidence of drumlins "'and some quite fine examples of obviously erratic boulders. "'It's about ten miles.' "'Rincewind stared at him. A brigand's directions were usually more along the lines of keep straight on past the burning city and turn right when you've passed all the citizens hanging up by their ears. Those drumlins sound dangerous, he said. They're just a type of post-glacial hill, said Mr. Savaloy. What about these erratic boulders? They sound like the kind of thing that had pounce and... Just boulders dropped a long way from home by a glacier said Mr. Savaloy. Nothing to worry about. The landscape is not hostile. Rincewind didn't believe him. He'd had the ground hit him very hard many times. However, said Mr. Savaloy, Hung Hung is a little dangerous at the moment. No. Really? said Rincewind wearily. It's not exactly a siege. Everyone's waiting for the Emperor to die. These are what they call here... He smiled. Interesting times. I hate interesting times. The other hoarders had wandered off, fallen asleep again, or were complaining to one another about their feet. The voice of Cohen could be heard somewhere in the distance. Look, this is a match, and this is... You know, you sound a very educated man for a barbarian, said Rincewind. "'Oh, dear me, I didn't start out a barbarian. "'I used to be a schoolteacher. "'That's why they call me Teach.' "'What do you teach?' "'Geography. "'And I was very interested in Oriental.' "'The Ankh-Morpork name for the counterweight continent "'and its nearby islands. "'It means place where the gold comes from.' "'Studies. "'But I decided to give it up and make my living by the sword.' After being a teacher all your life? It did mean a change of perspective, yes. But, well, surely the privation, the terrible hazards, the daily risk of death. Mr. Savaloy brightened up. Oh, you've been a teacher, have you? Rincewind looked around when someone shouted. He turned to see two of the horde arguing nose to nose. Mr. Savaloy sighed. I'm trying to teach them chess, he said. It's vital to the understanding of the oriental mind, but I am afraid they have no concept of taking turns at moving, and their idea of an opening gambit is for the king and all the pawns to rush up the board together and set fire to the opposing rooks. Rincewind leaned closer. Look, I mean, Genghis Cohen, he said. Has he gone off his head? I mean... Just killing half a dozen geriatric priests and nicking some paste gems, yes. Attacking 40,000 guards all by himself is certain death. Oh, he won't be by himself, said Mr. Savaloy. Rincewind blinked. There was something about Cohen. People caught optimism off him, as though it was the common cold. Oh, yes, of course. Sorry, I'd forgotten that. Seven against 40,000. I shouldn't think you'll have any problems. I'll just be going... Fairly quickly, I think. We have a plan. It's a sort of... Mr. Savaloy hesitated. His eyes unfocused slightly. You know, thing. Bees do it. Wasps, too. Also some jellyfish, I believe. Had the word only a moment ago. Ugh, it's going to be the biggest one ever, I think. Rincewind gave him another blank stare. I'm sure I saw a spare horse, he said. 
"'Let me give you this,' said Mr. Savaloy. "'Then perhaps you'll understand. "'It's what it's all about, really.' "'He handed Rincewind a small bundle of papers "'fastened together by a loop of string through one corner. "'Rincewind, shoving it hastily into his pocket, "'noticed only the title on the first page. "'It said, "'What I did on my holidays.' The choices seemed very clear to Rincewind. There was the city of Hung Hung under siege, apparently throbbing with revolution and danger, and there was everywhere else. Therefore, it was important to know where Hung Hung was so that he didn't blunder into it by accident. He paid a lot of attention to Mr. Savaloy's instructions and then rode the other way. He could get a ship somewhere. Of course, the wizards would be surprised to see him back, but he could always say there'd been no one in. The hills gave way to scrubland, which in turn led down to an apparently endless damp plain, which contained in the misty distance a river so winding that half the time it must have been flowing backwards. The land was a checkerboard of cultivation. Rincewind liked the countryside in theory, providing it wasn't rising up to meet him and was for preference happening on the far side of a city wall. But this was hardly countryside. It was more like one big hedgeless farm. Occasional huge rocks, looking dangerously erratic, rose out of the fields. Sometimes he'd see people hard at work in the distance. As far as he could tell, their chief activity was moving mud around. Occasionally he'd see a man standing ankle-deep in a flooded field, holding a water buffalo on the end of a length of string. The buffalo grazed and occasionally moved its bowels. The man held the string. It seemed to be his entire goal and occupation in life. There were a few other people on the road. Usually they were pushing wheelbarrows loaded with water buffalo dung, or possibly mud. They didn't pay any attention to Rincewind. In fact, they made a point of not paying attention. They scurried past, staring intently at the scenes of mud dynamics or bovine bowel movement happening in the fields. Rincewind would be the first to admit that he was a slow thinker. In fact, he'd be about the 73rd to admit it. But he'd been around long enough to spot the signs. These people weren't paying him any attention because they didn't see people on horseback. They were probably descended from people who learned that if you look too hard at anyone on horseback, you receive a sharp stinging sensation such as might be obtained by a stick around the ear. Not looking up at people on horseback had become hereditary. People who stared at people on horseback in what was considered to be a funny way never survived long enough to breed. He decided to try an experiment. The next wheelbarrow that trundled past was carrying not mud, but people, about half a dozen of them, on seats either side of the huge central wheel. The method of propulsion was secondarily by a small sail erected to catch the wind, but primarily by that pre-eminent source of motive power in a peasant community, someone's great-grandfather, or at least someone who looked like someone's great-grandfather. Cohen had said, There's men here who can push a wheelbarrow for thirty miles in a bowl of millet with a bit of scum in it. What does that tell you? It tells me someone's porking all the beef. Rincewind decided to explore the social dynamics and also try out the language. It had been years since he'd last used it, but he had to admit that Rid Cully had been right. He did have a gift for languages. Agatean was a language of a few basic syllables. It was really all in the tone, inflection and context. Otherwise, the word for military leader was also the word for long-tailed marmot, male sexual organ, and ancient chicken coop. "'Hey there, you!' he shouted. "'Er, uh, to bend bamboo? An expression of disapproval? Er, uh, I mean, stop!' The barrow slewed to a halt. No one looked at him. They looked past him, or around him, or towards his feet. Eventually the wheelbarrow pusher, in the manner of a man who knows he's in for it no matter what he does, mumbled, Your honour commands? Rincewind felt very sorry later for what he said next. He said, Just give me all your food and unwilling dogs, will you? They watched him impassively. Damn, I mean, arranged beetles? Uh, variety of waterfall? Um, oh, yes. Money. There was a general fumbling and shifting among the passengers. Then the wheelbarrow pusher sidled towards Rincewind, head down, and held up his hat. It contained some rice, some dried fish, a highly dangerous-looking egg, and about a pound of gold in big round coins. Rincewind stared at the gold. Gold was as common as copper on the counterweight continent. 
That was one of the few things everyone knew about the place. There was no point in Cohen trying any kind of big robbery. There was a limit to what anyone could carry. He might as well rob one peasant village and live like a king for the rest of his life. It wouldn't be as if he'd need that much. The later suddenly caught up with him, and he did indeed feel quite ashamed. These people had hardly anything, apart from loads of gold. Er, uh, thanks. Thank you. Yes, um, just checking. Yes, you can all have it back now. I'll, um, keep the elderly grandmother to run sideways. Oh, damn, Uh, fish. Rincewind had always been on the bottom of the social heap. It didn't matter what size heap it was. The top got higher or lower, but the bottom was always in the same place. But at least it was an ankh Morpork heap. No one bowed to anyone in ankh Morpork, and anyone who tried what he'd just tried in ankh Morpork would by now be scrabbling in the gutter for his teeth and whimpering about the pain in his groin, and his horse would already have been repainted twice and sold to a man who'd be swearing he'd owned it for years. He felt oddly proud of the fact. Something strange welled up from the sludgy depths of his soul. It was, to his amazement, a generous impulse. He slid off the horse and held out the reins. A horse was useful, but he was used to doing without one. Besides, over a short distance a man could run faster than a horse, and this was a fact very dear to Rincewind's heart. Here, he said, you can have it, for the fish. The wheelbarrow pusher screamed, grabbed the handles of his conveyance, and hurtled desperately away. Several people were thrown off, took one almost look at Rincewind, also screamed, and ran after him. Worse than whips, Cohen had said. They've got something here worse than whips. They don't need whips any more. Rincewind hoped he'd never find out what it was, if it had done this to people. He rode on through an endless panorama of fields. There weren't even any patches of roadside scrub or taverns. Away among the fields were shapes that might be small towns or villages, but no apparent paths to them, possibly because paths used up valuable agricultural mud. Finally, he sat down on a rock that presumably not even the peasants' most concerted efforts had been able to move, and reached into his pocket for his shameful dried fish lunch. His hand touched the bundle of papers Mr. Savaloy had given him. He pulled them out and got crumbs on them. This is what it's all about, the barbarian teacher had said. He hadn't explained what it was. What I did on my holidays, said the title. It was in bad handwriting, or rather bad painting. The Agateans wrote with paintbrushes, assembling little word pictures out of handy components. One picture wasn't just worth a thousand words, it was a thousand words. Rincewind wasn't much good at reading the language. There were very few Agatean books, even in the unseen university library. And this one looked as though whoever had written it had been trying to make sense of something unfamiliar. He turned over a couple of pages. It was a story about a great city, containing magnificent things. Beer strong like an ox, it said, and pies containing many, many parts of pig. Everyone in the city seemed to be wise, kind, strong, or all three, especially some character called the Great Wizard, who seemed to feature largely in the text. And there were mystifying little comments, as in, I saw a man tread upon the toes of a city guard who said to him, Your wife is a big hippo, to which the man responded, Place it where the sun does not shed daylight enormous person. Upon which the guard... This bit was in red ink, and the handwriting was shaky, as if the writer was quite excited. Did not remove the man's head according to ancient custom. The statement was followed by a pictogram of a dog passing water, which was for some obscure reason the Agatean equivalent of an exclamation mark. There were five of these. Rincewind flicked through the pages. They were filled with the same dull stuff, sentences stating the blindingly obvious, but often then followed by several incontinent dogs. Such as, The innkeeper said the city had demanded tax, but he did not intend to pay, and when I asked if he was not afraid, he vouchsafed, complicated pictogram, them all except one, and he can, complicated pictogram, himself. Urinating dog, urinating dog. He went on to say, the pictogram indicating supreme ruler is a... Another pictogram, which after some thought and holding up the picture at various angles, Rincewind decided meant a horse's bottom, and you can tell him I said so. At which point a guard in the tavern did not disembowel him, urinating dog, urinating dog, but said, tell him from me also, urinating dog, urinating dog, urinating dog, urinating dog, urinating dog. What was so odd about that? People talked like that in Ankh-Morpork all the time, or at least expressed those sentiments. 
apart from the dog. Mind you, a country that had wiped out a whole city to teach the other cities a lesson was a mad place. Perhaps this was a book of jokes, and he just hadn't seen the point. Perhaps comedians here got big laughs with lines like, I say, I say, I say, I met a man on the way to the theatre, and he didn't chop my legs off, urinating dog, urinating dog. He had been aware of the jingle of harnesses on the road, but hadn't paid it any attention. He hadn't even looked up at the sound of someone approaching. By the time he did think of looking up, it was too late, because someone had their boot on his neck. Oh, urinating dog, he said, before passing out. There was a puff of air and the luggage appeared, dropping heavily into a snowdrift. There was a meat cleaver sticking into its lid. It remained motionless for some time, and then, its legs moving in a complicated little dance, it turned around 360 degrees. The luggage did not think. It had nothing to think with. Whatever processes went on inside, it probably had more to do with the way a tree reacts to sun and rain and sudden storms, but speeded up very fast. After a while it seemed to get its bearings and ambled off across the melting snow. The luggage did not feel either. It had nothing to feel with, but it reacted in the same way that a tree reacts to the changing of the seasons. Its pace quickened. It was close to home. Rincewind had to concede that the shouting man was right. Not that is about Rincewind's father being the diseased liver of a type of mountain panda and his mother being a bucket of turtle slime. Rincewind had no personal experience of either parent, but felt that they were probably at least vaguely humanoid, if only briefly. But on the subject of appearing to own a stolen horse, he had Rincewind bang to rights. And also, a foot on his neck. A foot on the neck is nine points of the law. He felt hands rummaging in his pockets. Another person, Rincewind was not able to see much beyond a few inches of alluvial soil, but from context it appeared to be an unsympathetic person, joined in the shouting. Rincewind was hauled upright. The guards were pretty much like guards as Rincewind had experienced them everywhere. They had exactly the amount of intellect required to hit people and drag them off to the scorpion pit. They were league champions at shouting at people a few inches from their face. The effect was made surreal by the fact that the guards themselves had no faces, or at least no faces they could call their own. Their ornate, black-enamelled helmets had huge, mustachioed visages painted on them, leaving only the owner's mouth uncovered, so that he could, for example, call Rincewind's grandfather a box of inferior goldfish droppings. What I did on my holidays was waved in front of his face. Bag of rotted fish! I don't know what it means, said Rincewind. Someone just gave it to me. Feet of extreme rotted milk! Could you perhaps not shout quite so loud? I think my eardrum has just exploded. The guard subsided, possibly only because he'd run out of breath. Rincewind had a moment to look at the scenery. There were two carts on the road. One of them seemed to be a cage on wheels. He made out faces watching him in terror. The other was an ornate palanquin carried by eight peasants. Rich curtains covered the sides, but he could see where they'd been twitched aside so that someone within could look at him. The guards were aware of this. It seemed to make them awkward. If I could just explain... Silence! Mouth of... The guard hesitated. You've used turtle, goldfish, and what you probably meant to be cheese, said Rincewind. Mouth of chicken gizzards! A long, thin hand emerged from the curtains and beckoned just once. Rincewind was hustled forward. The hand had the longest fingernails he'd ever seen on something that didn't purr. Kowtow. Sorry, said Rincewind. Kowtow. Swords were produced. I don't know what you mean, Rincewind wailed. Kowtow, please, whispered a voice by his ear. It was not a particularly friendly voice, but compared to all the other voices, it was positively affectionate. It sounded as though it belonged to quite a young man, and it was speaking very good Morporkian. How? You don't know that. Kneel down, press your forehead on the ground. That's if you want to be able to wear a hat again. Rincewind hesitated. He was a free-born Morporkian, and on the list of things a citizen didn't do was bow down to any, not to put too fine a point on it, foreigner. On the other hand, right at the top of the list of things a citizen didn't do was get their head chopped off. That's better, that's good. How did you know you ought to tremble? 
Oh, I, um, I thought that bit up myself. The hand beckoned with a finger. A guard slapped Rincewind in the face with a mud-encrusted what I did. Rincewind clutched it guiltily as the guard scurried towards his master's digit. Voice, said Rincewind. Yes. What happens if I claim immunity because I'm a foreigner? There's a special thing they do with a wire mesh waistcoat and a cheese grater. Oh. And there are torturers in Hung Hung who can keep a man alive for years. I suppose you're not talking about healthy early morning runs and a high-fibre diet. No, so keep quiet and with any luck you'll be sent to be a slave in the palace. Luck is my middle name, said Rincewind, indistinctly. Mind you, my first name is bad. Remember to gibber and grovel. I'll do my very best. The white hand emerged bearing a scrap of paper. The guard took it, turned towards Rincewind, and cleared his throat. Hearken to the wisdom and justice of District Commissioner Key, ball of swamp emanations. Not him, I mean you. He cleared his throat again and peered closer at the paper in the manner of one who learned to read by saying the name of each letter very carefully to himself. The white pony runs through the... the... The guard turned and held a whispered conversation with the curtains and turned back again. Chrysanthemum blossoms. The cold wind stirs the apricot trees. Send him to the palace to slave until all appendages drop off. Several of the other guards applauded. Look up and clap, said the voice. I'm afraid my appendages will drop off. It's a big cheese grater. Encore! Wow! Superb! That bit about the chrysanthemums! Wonderful! Good. Listen. You're from Bespelagic. You've got the right accent, damned if I know why. It's a seaport and people there are a little strange. You were robbed by bandits and escaped on one of their horses. That's why you haven't got your papers. You need pieces of paper for everything here, including being anybody. And pretend you don't know me. I don't know you. Good. Long live the changing things to a more equitable state while retaining due respect for the traditions of our forebears and, of course, not harming the august personage of the Emperor Endeavour. Good. Yes. What? A guard kicked Rincewind in the region of the kidneys. This suggested, in the universal language of the boot, that he should get up. He managed to get up on one knee and saw the luggage. It wasn't his, and there were three of them. The luggage trotted to the crest of a low hill and stopped so fast that it left a lot of little grooves in the dirt. In addition to not having any equipment with which to think or feel, the luggage also had no means of seeing. The manner in which it perceived events was a complete mystery. It perceived other luggages. The three of them stood patiently in a line behind the palanquin. They were big. They were black. The luggage's legs disappeared inside its body, after a while, it very cautiously opened its lid, just a fraction. Of the three things that most people know about the horse, the third is that over a short distance it can't run as fast as a man. As Rincewind had learned to his advantage, it has more legs to sort out. There are additional advantages if a. the people on horseback aren't expecting you to run and b. you happen to be very conveniently in an athletic starting position. Rincewind rose like a boomerang curry from a sensitive stomach. There was a lot of shouting, but the comforting thing, the important thing, was that it was all behind him. It would soon try to catch him up, but that was a problem for the future. He could also consider where he was running to as well, but an experienced coward never bothered with the two when the from held such fascination. A less practised runner would have risked a glance behind, but Rincewind instinctively knew all about wind drag and the tendency of inconvenient rocks to position themselves under the unwary foot. Besides, why look behind? He was already running as fast as he could. Nothing he could see would make him run any faster. There was a large, shapeless village ahead, a construction apparently of mud and dung. In the fields in front of it, a dozen peasants looked up from their toil at the accelerating wizard. Perhaps it was Rincewind's imagination, but as he passed them, he could have sworn that he heard the cry, "'Necessarily extended duration to the Red Army, regrettable decease without undue suffering to the forces of oppression.' 
Rincewind dived through the huts as the soldiers charged at the peasants. Cohen had been right. There seemed to be a revolution, but the Empire had been in unchanged existence for thousands of years. Courtesy and respect for protocol were part of its very fabric, and by the sound of it, the revolutionaries had yet to master the art of impolite slogans. Rincewind preferred running to hiding. Hiding was all very well, but if you were found, then you were stuck. But the village was the only cover for miles around, and some of the soldiers had horses. A man might be faster than a horse over a short distance, but over this panorama of flat open fields, a horse had a running man banged to rights. So he ducked into a building at random and pushed aside the first door he came to. It had pasted on it the words, Examination. Silence. Forty expectant and slightly worried faces looked up at him from their writing stools. They weren't children, but full-grown adults. There was a lectern at the end of the room, and on it a pile of papers sealed with string and wax. Rincewind felt the atmosphere was familiar. He'd breathed it before, even if it had been a world away. It was full of those cold, sweaty odours created by the sudden realisation that it was probably too late to do that revision you'd kept on putting off. Rincewind had faced many horrors in his time, but none held quite the same place in the lexicon of dread as those few seconds after someone said, Turn over your papers now. The candidates were watching him. There was shouting somewhere outside. He hurried up to the lectern, tore at the string, and distributed the papers as fast as he could. Then he dived back to the safety of the lectern, removed his hat, and was bent low when the door opened slowly. "'Go away!' he screamed. "'Examination in progress!' The unseen figure behind the door murmured something to someone else. The door was closed again. The candidates were still staring at him. "'Er, uh, very well. Turn over your papers.' There was a rustle, a few moments of that dreadful silence, and then much activity with brushes. Competitive examinations. Oh, yes. That was another thing people knew about the Empire. They were the only way to get any kind of public post and the security that brought. People had said that this must be a very good system because it opened up opportunities for people of merit. Rincewind picked up a spare paper and read it. It was headed, Examination for the post of Assistant Night Soil Operative for the District of Wung. He read question one. It required candidates to write a sixteen-line poem on evening mist over the reed beds. Question two seemed to be about the use of metaphor in some book Rincewind had never heard of. Then there was a question about music. Rincewind turned the paper over a couple of times. There didn't seem to be any mention anywhere of words like compost or bucket or wheelbarrow, but presumably all this produced a better class of person than the ankh Morpork system, which asked just one question, got your own shovel, have you? The shouting outside seemed to have died away. Rincewind risked poking his head out of the door. There was a commotion near the road, but it no longer seemed Rincewind orientated. He ran for it. The students got on with their examination. One of the more enterprising, however, rolled up his trouser leg and copied down a poem about mist he'd composed, at great effort, some time previously. After a while, you got to know what kind of questions the examiners asked. Rincewind trotted onwards, trying to keep to ditches wherever these weren't knee-deep in sucking mud. It wasn't a landscape built for concealment. The Agateans grew crops on any piece of ground the seeds wouldn't roll off. Apart from the occasional rocky outcrop, there was a distinct lack of places in which to lurk. No one paid him much attention once he'd left the village far behind. The occasional water buffalo operative would turn to watch him until he was out of sight, but displayed no special curiosity. It was merely that Rincewind was marginally more interesting than watching a water buffalo defecate. He kept the road just in sight and by evening reached a crossroads. There was an inn. Rincewind hadn't eaten since the leopard. The inn meant food, but food meant money. He was hungry and he had no money. He chided himself for this kind of negative thinking. That was not the right approach. What he should do was go in and order a large, nourishing meal. Then, instead of being hungry with no money, he'd be well fed with no money. A net gain on his current position. Of course, the world was likely to raise some objections, but in Rincewind's experience there were few problems that couldn't be solved with a scream and a good ten yards start. And of course, he would have just had a strengthening meal. Besides, he liked Hung Hungy's food. A few refugees had opened restaurants in Ankh Morpork, and Rincewind considered himself something of an expert on the dishes, such as dish of glistening brown stuff, dish of glistening crunchy orange stuff, and dish of soft white lumps. 
The one huge room was thick with smoke, and insofar as this could be determined through the swirls and coils, quite busy. A couple of old men were sitting in front of a complicated pile of ivory tiles, playing Shibo Yang Kong San. He wasn't sure what they were smoking, but by the looks on their faces, they were happy they'd chosen it. Rincewind made his way to the fireplace where a skinny man was tending a cauldron. He gave him a cheery smile. Good morning. Can I partake of your famous delicacy, meal A for two people with extra prawn cracker? Never heard of it. Um, then could I see a painful ear, a croak of frog, a menu? What's a menu, friend? Rincewind nodded. He knew what it meant when a stranger called you friend like that. No one who called someone else friend was feeling very kindly disposed. Uh, what is there to eat, I meant. Noodles, boiled cabbage and pork whiskers. Is that all? Pork whiskers don't grow on trees, San. I've been seeing water buffalo all day, Rincewind said. Don't you people ever eat beef? The ladle splashed into the cauldron. Somewhere behind him a shibo tile dropped onto the floor. The back of Rincewind's head prickled under the stairs. We don't serve rebels in this place, said the landlord loudly. Probably too meaty, Rincewind thought. But it seemed to him that the words had been addressed to the world in general rather than to him. Glad to hear it, he said, because... Yes, indeed, said the landlord a little louder. No rebels welcome here. Well, that's fine by me, because if I knew of any rebels, I would be certain to alert the authorities, the landlord bellowed. I'm not a rebel, I'm just hungry, said Rincewind. I'd, uh, like a bowlful, please. A bowl was filled. Rainbow patterns shimmered on its oily surface. That'll be half a rhino, said the landlord. You mean you want me to pay before I eat it, said Rincewind. You might not want to afterwards, friend. A rhino was more gold than Rincewind had ever owned. He patted his pockets theatrically. In fact, it seems that, he began, there was a small thump beside him. What I did on my holidays had fallen onto the floor. Yes, thank you, that will do nicely, said the landlord to the room at large. He pushed the bowl into Rincewind's hand and in one movement scooped up the booklet and crammed it back into the wizard's pocket. Go and sit down in the corner, he hissed, and you'll be told what to do. But I'm sure I know what to do. Dip spoon in bowl, raise spoon to mouth. Sit down. Rincewind found the darkest corner and sat down. People were still watching him. To avoid the group gaze, he pulled out what I did and opened it at random in an effort to find out why it had a magical effect on the landlord sold me a bun containing what was called a complicated pictogram made entirely of the inside of pigs, urinating dog, he read, and such as these could be bought for small coin at any time and so replete were the citizens that hardly any bought these complicated pictogram from the stall of complicated pictogram, but it seemed to involve a razor, San. Sausages filled with pig parts, thought Rincewind. Well, perhaps they might be amazing if up until then a bowl of dishwater with something congealing on the top of it had been your idea of a hearty meal. Ha! Mr. What-I-Did-On-My-Holidays should try coming to Ankh Morpork next time and see how much he liked one of old Dibbler's sausages, full of genuine pig product. The spoon splashed into the bowl. Rincewind turned the pages hurriedly. Peaceful streets along which I walked were quite free of crime and brigandage. Of course they were, you four-eyed little git, shouted Rincewind. That was because it was all happening to me. A city where all men are free. Free? Free? Well, yes, free to starve, get robbed by the thieves' guild, said Rincewind to the book. He fumbled through to another page. My companion was the great wizard. Complicated pictogram, but now that Rincewind studied it, he realised with a plummeting heart it had a few lines that looked like the Agatean for wind. The most prominent and powerful wizard in the entire country. I never said that. Ah, Rincewind stopped. Memory treacherously dredged up a few phrases such as, Oh, the Arch-Chancellor listens to everything I say, and 
that place would just fall down without me around. But that was just the sort of thing you said after a few beers. Surely no one would be so gullible as to write. A picture focused itself in Rincewind's memory. It was of a happy, smiling little man with huge spectacles and a trusting, innocent approach to life, which brought terror and destruction everywhere he wandered. Twoflower had been quite unable to believe that the world was a bad place, and that was largely because to him it wasn't. It saved it all up for Rincewind. Rincewind's life had been quite uneventful before he'd met Twoflower. Since then, as far as he could remember, it had contained events in huge amounts. And the little man had gone back home, hadn't he? To Best Pelagic, the Empire's only proper seaport. Surely no one would be so gullible as to write this sort of thing. Surely no one apart from one person would be so gullible. Rincewind was not politically minded, but there were some things he could work out, not because they were to do with politics, but because they had a lot to do with human nature. Nasty images moved into place like bad scenery. The Empire had a wall around it. If you lived in the Empire, then you learned how to make soup out of pig squeals and swallow spit, because that's how it was done. And you were bullied by soldiers all the time, because that was how the world worked. But if someone wrote a cheerful little book about what I did on my holidays, in a place where the world worked quite differently, then, however fossilised the society, there would always be some people who asked themselves dangerous questions, like, where's the pork? Rincewind stared glumly at the wall. Peasants of the Empire rebel. You have nothing to lose but your heads and hands and feet, and there's this thing they do with a wire waistcoat and a cheese grater. He turned the book over. There was no author's name. There was simply a little message. Increased luck? Make copies, extended duration and happiness to the endeavour. Ankh Morpork had had the occasional rebellion too over the years, but no one went around organising things. They just grabbed themselves a weapon and took to the streets. No one bothered with a formal battle cry, relying instead on the well-tried, There he goes, get him, got him, now kick him in a fork. The point was, whatever caused that sort of thing wasn't usually the reason for it. When Mad Lord Snape Case had been hung up by his figgin, according to the history books. However, in common with every other young student, Rincewind had hopefully looked up figgin in the dictionary and found it was a small bun with currants in it. This meant that either the language had changed a little over the years, or that there really was some horrifying aspect to suspending a man alongside a tea cake. It hadn't really been because he'd made poor old Spooner Boggis eat his own nose. It had been because years of inventive nastiness had piled on one another until the grievances reached. There was a terrible scream from the far side of the room. Rincewind was half out of his seat before he noticed the little stage and the actors. A trio of musicians had squatted down on the floor. The inn's customers turned to watch. It was in a way quite enjoyable. Rincewind didn't quite follow the plot, but it went something like man gets girl, man loses girl to other man, man cuts couple in half, man falls on own sword, all come up front for a bow to what might be the Agatean equivalent of happy days are here again. It was a little hard to make out the fine detail because the actors shouted hoorah a lot and spent much of their time talking to the audience and their masks all looked the same to Rincewind. The musicians were in a world of their own, or by the sound of it, three different worlds. Fortune cookie? Hmm? Rincewind re-emerged from the thickets of thespianism to see the landlord beside him. A dish of vaguely bivalvular biscuits was thrust under his nose. Fortune cookie? Rincewind reached out. Just as his fingers were about to close on one, the plate was jerked sideways an inch or two, bringing another under his hand. Oh well, he took it. The thing was... His thoughts resumed as the play screamed on. At least in Ankh Morpork you could lay your hands on real weapons. Poor devils. It took more than well-turned slogans and a lot of enthusiasm to run a good rebellion. You needed well-trained fighters and above all a good leader. He hoped they had found one when he was well away. He unrolled the fortune and read it idly, oblivious to the landlord walking around behind him. Instead of the usual, you have just enjoyed an inferior meal... It was quite a complicated pictogram. Rincewind's fingers traced the brush strokes. Many, many apologies. What kind... 
The musician with the cymbals clashed them together sharply. The wooden kosh bounced off Rincewind's head. The old men playing Shibo nodded happily to themselves and turned back to their game. It was a fine morning. The hideout echoed to the sounds of the silver horde getting up, groaning, adjusting various homemade surgical supports, complaining that they couldn't find their spectacles, and mistakenly gumming one another's dentures. Cohen sat with his feet in a bath of warm water, enjoying the sunshine. Tate? The former geography teacher concentrated on a map he was making. Yes, Genghis? What's Mad Hamish going on about? He says the bread's stale and he can't find his teeth. Tell him if things go right for us, he can have a dozen young women just to chew his bread for him, said Cohen. That is not very hygienic, Genghis, said Mr Savaloy, without bothering to look up. Remember, I explained about hygiene. Cohen didn't bother to answer. He was thinking. Six old men. And you can't really count Teach, he's a thinker, not a fighter. Self-doubt was not something regularly entertained within the Cohen cranium. When you're trying to carry a struggling temple maiden and a sack of looted temple goods in one hand and fight off half a dozen angry priests with the other, there is little time for reflection. Natural selection saw to it that the professional heroes who at a crucial moment tended to ask themselves questions like what is my purpose in life, very quickly lacked both. But six old men, and the Empire had almost a million men under arms. When you looked at the odds in the cold light of dawn, or even this rather pleasant warm light of dawn, they made you stop and do the arithmetic of death. If the plan went wrong... Cohen bit his lip thoughtfully. If the plan went wrong, it'd take weeks to kill all of them. Maybe he should have let old Thog the Butcher come along too, even though he had to stop fighting every ten minutes to go to the lavatory. Oh well. He was committed now, so he might as well make the best of it. Cohen's father had taken him to a mountaintop when he was no more than a lad and explained to him the hero's creed and told him that there was no greater joy than to die in battle. Cohen had seen the flaw in this straight away, and a lifetime's experience had reinforced his belief that in fact a greater joy was to kill the other bugger in battle and end up sitting on a heap of gold higher than your horse. It was an observation that had served him well. He stood up and stretched in the sunshine. "'It's a lovely morning, lads,' he said. "'I feel like a million dollars, don't you?' There was a murmur of reluctant agreement. "'Good,' said Cohen. "'Let's go and get some.' The Great Wall completely surrounds the Agatean Empire. The word is completely. It is usually about twenty feet high and sheer on its inner side. It is built along beaches and across howling deserts and even on the lip of sheer cliffs where the possibility of attack from outside is remote. On subject islands like Bang Bang Duk and Tingling, there are similar walls, all metaphorically the same wall, and that seems strange to those of an unthinking military disposition who do not realise what its function really is. It's more than just a wall. It is a marker. On one side is the Empire which in the Agatean language is a word identical with universe, on the other side is nothing. After all, the universe is everything there is. Oh, there may appear to be things like sea, islands, other continents and so on. They may even appear solid. It may be possible to conquer them, walk on them. But they are not ultimately real. The Agatean word for foreigner is the same as the word for ghost, and only one brushstroke away from the word for victim. The walls are sheer in order to discourage those boring people who persist in believing that there might be anything interesting on the other side. Amazingly enough, there are people who simply won't take the hint, even after thousands of years. The ones near the coast build rafts and head out across lonely seas to lands that are a fable. The ones inland resort to man-carrying kites and chairs propelled by fireworks. Many of them die in the attempt, of course. Most of the others are soon caught and made to live in interesting times but some did make it to the great melting pot called Ankh-Morpork. They arrived with no money, sailors charged what the market would bear, which was everything, but they had a mad gleam in their eye, and they opened shops and restaurants and worked 24 hours a day. People called this the Ankh-Morpork dream, of making piles of cash in a place where your death was unlikely to be a matter of public policy, and it was dreamed all the stronger by people who didn't sleep.
Rincewind sometimes thought that his life was punctuated by awakenings. They were not always rude ones. Sometimes they were merely impolite. A very few, one or two perhaps, had been quite nice, especially on the island. The sun had come up in its humdrum fashion, the waves had washed on the beach in quite a boring way, and on several occasions he'd managed to erupt from unconsciousness without his habitual small scream. This one wasn't just rude, it was downright insolent. He was being bumped about and someone had tied his hands together. It was dark, a fact occasioned by the sack over his head. Rincewind did some calculation and reached a conclusion. This is the seventeenth worst day of my life so far, he thought. Being knocked unconscious in pubs was quite commonplace. If it happened in Ark Moorpork, then you'd likely as not wake up lying on the Ark with all your money gone, or if a ship was due out on a long and unpopular voyage, chained up in some scupper somewhere with no option for the next two years but to plough the ocean wave. A dismal prospect, especially when the horses keep sinking. But generally, the knocker wanted to keep you alive. The Thieves' Guild were punctilious about that. As they said, hit a man too hard and you can only rob him once. Hit him just hard enough and you can rob him every week. If he was in what felt like a cart, then someone had some purpose in keeping him alive. He wished he hadn't thought of that. Someone pulled the sack off. A terrifying visage stared down at him. I would like to eat your foot, said Rincewind. Don't worry, I'm a friend. The mask was lifted away. There was a young woman behind it, round-faced, snub-nosed, and quite different from any other citizen Rincewind had met hitherto. That was, he realised, because she was looking straight at him. Her clothes, if not her face, had last been seen on the stage. Don't cry out, she said. Why? What are you going to do? We would have welcomed you properly, but there was no time. She sat down among the bundles in the back of the swaying cart and regarded him critically. Four big sandals said you arrived on a dragon and slaughtered a regiment of soldiers, she said. I did? And then you worked a magic on a venerable old man and he became a great fighter. He did? And you gave him whole meat, even though four big sandals is only of the pung class. I did? And you have your hat. Yes, yes, got my hat. And yet, said the girl, you don't look like a great wizard. Ah, well, the fact is. The girl looked as fragile as a flower, but she just pulled out from somewhere in the folds of her costume a small but perfectly serviceable knife. Rincewind had picked up an instinct for this sort of thing. This was probably not the time to deny great wizardry. The fact is, he repeated, that... How do I know I can trust you? The girl looked indignant. Do you not have amazing wizardly powers? Oh, yes, certainly, but, um... Say something in wizard language. Um, Sturcus, Sturcus, Sturcus Moritatus Sum, said Rincewind, his eye on the knife. Oh, excrement, am I about to die? It's, um, a special mantra, I say, to raise the magical fluxes. The girl subsided a little. But it takes it out of you, wizarding, said Rincewind. Flying on dragons, magically turning old men into warriors. I can only do so much of that sort of thing before it's time for a rest. Right now I'm very weak on account of the tremendous amounts of magic I've just used, you see. She looked at him with doubt still in her eyes. All the peasants believe in the imminent arrival of the great wizard, she said. But in the words of the great philosopher Lee Tin Weedle, when many expect a mighty stallion, they will find hooves on an ant. She gave him another calculating look. When you were on the road, she said, you groveled in front of District Commissioner Key. You could have blasted him with terrible fire. Biding my time, spying out the land, not wanting to break my cover, Rincewind gabbled. Uh, no good revealing myself straight away, is there? You are maintaining a disguise? Yes. It is a very good one. Uh, thank you, because... Only a great wizard could dare to look like such a pathetic piece of humanity. Thank you. Um, how did you know I was on the road? They would have killed you there and then if I had not told you what to do. You were the guard? 
We had to catch up with you quickly. It was sheer luck you were seen by four big sandal. We? She ignored the question. They are only provincial soldiers. I would not have got away with it in Hong Hong. But I can play many roles. She put away the knife, but Rincewind had a feeling that he hadn't talked her into believing him, only into not killing him. He groped for a straw. I've got a magic box on legs, he said, with a touch of pride. It follows me around. It seems to have got itself mislaid right now, but it's quite an amazing thing. The girl gave him a wooden look. Then she reached down with a delicate hand and hauled him upright. Is it, she said, something like this? She twitched aside the curtains at the rear of the cart. Two boxes were trundling along in the dust. They were more battered and cheaper looking than the luggage, but recognisably the same general species, if you could apply the word to travel accessories. Um, yes. She let go. Rincewind's head hit the floor. Listen to me, she said. A lot of bad things are happening. I don't believe in great wizards, but other people do, and sometimes people need something to believe in. And if these other people die because we've got a wizard who is not so very great, then he will be a very unlucky wizard indeed. You may be the great wizard. If you are not, then I suggest you study very hard to be great. Do I make myself clear? Um, yes. Rincewind had been faced with death on numerous occasions. Often there was armour and swords involved. This occasion just involved a pretty girl and a knife, but somehow managed to be among the worst. She sat back. We are a travelling theatre, she said. It is convenient. No actors are allowed to move around. Aren't they? said Rincewind. You do not understand. We are no actors. Oh, you weren't too bad. Great wizard, no is a non-realist, symbolic form of theatre, employing archaic language, stylized gestures, and an accompaniment of flutes and drums. Your pretense of stupidity is masterly, so much so that I could even believe that you are no actor. Excuse me, what is your name? Rincewind said. Pretty Butterfly. Um, yes? She glared at him and slipped away towards the front of the cart. It rumbled on. Rincewind lay with his head in a sack smelling of onions and methodically cursed things. He cursed women with knives, and history generally, and the entire faculty of Unseen University, and his absent luggage, and the population of the Agatean Empire. But right now, at the top of the list, was whoever had designed this cart. By the feel of it, whoever had thought that rough, splintery wood was the right surface for a floor was also the person who thought triangular was a nice shape for a wheel. End of CD 3